Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, friends. Welcome to OnScript. This is Amy Brown-Hughes, a co-host for the podcast with Matt Lynch, Matt Bates, Aaron Heim, Drew Johnson, Chris Tilling, and Jules Martinez-Olivieri. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Karen O'Donnell, who leads research and teaching in Christian spirituality at Sarum College in Salisbury in the UK. She's a feminist practical theologian with a particular interest in the intersections of body and theology, especially around the issue of trauma. Her first monograph was Broken Bodies, the Eucharist, Mary and the Body in Trauma Theology, published by SCM Press in 2018, which explored the relationship between body and trauma and theology. And today we'll be talking about her brand new book, The Dark Womb, Reconceiving Theology Through Reproductive Loss, published by SCM Press. Welcome, Karen. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to begin this interview with a content warning. Um, We'll be having a conversation about miscarriage and trauma. So as we will discuss, this is going to be maybe for many listeners, a space of silence and grief and trauma. So listen gently, my friends. So there are books about theology. There are books that reevaluate or reimagine or reinvigorate theology. And then there are books like this one that reveals theology's silence, presumption, and even violence and faces it down. So asking a typical question about why you wrote this book seems a bit trite given the topic and given your story that provoked your work here. I recognize that sharing your story, even with some years distant, is a space of vulnerability and there's a cost. So I just want to thank you uh, for writing this book and for being willing to tell this story in what will be multiple venues, I'm sure, in the future. So thank you. I know asking the why this book is always a personal question, but this one hits differently than I saw a gap in the way that we discuss Christology. So hear this question in the spirit of opening space for you to enter the, introduce this book in the way you'd prefer to do so. Why did you write The Dark Womb? Um, that's such a generous opening question, Amy. Thank you. I, um, I make no secret of the fact that Uh, When I was in my 20s, I uh, experienced a series of reproductive losses, uh, miscarriages and ectopic pregnancies that ultimately left me infertile. Um, And at the time, I wasn't an academic. I wasn't a a formally trained theologian. Um, I was a secondary school teacher, high school teacher. And I was part of a a local charismatic evangelical church uh, in my hometown that I'd been part of since I was in my early teens. Um, And when this happened to me, when I started to experience these losses, I became aware of a couple of things. Firstly, I became aware of how um, natally focused the church I was in actually was and that there was no space within the church for... um, for an infertile and ultimately childless couple. Um, And there was no way of understanding who I was as a young woman without the potential to become a mother. Um, But more than that, I um, very confidently went to my local theological bookshop um, when when, um, I first experienced miscarriage, thinking 
I don't know what to make of this. I don't have any good words for it. I need to read something about it. And um, it will be of no surprise to you that there was nothing there. There was absolutely nothing there at all. Um, there was things about, you know, people whose, whose children had died very young, but I felt that was quite a different kind of experience. And it, it, there was this lack of theological work on a, on a topic that had absolutely devastated me and had really caused me to question my faith and what what how I envisaged and understood my relationship with God was so um, a kind of secondary trauma. It, it just said that that what had happened to me was so theologically unimportant, nobody had ever bothered to write about it. So I found that really distressing. Fast forward a few years, I trained as a uh, did my master's degree and my PhD in theology and I'd always had this niggling um, gap really that I knew I wanted to write about and address um, and um, with the benefit of hindsight I wouldn't have chosen the kind of three or four months before the pandemic to sign a book contract to do it but you know you make these decisions don't you so what I wanted to do was to articulate for myself more than more than anything to begin with at least just where my own theology had landed I'm a, a happy and regular attendee at church. I, I describe myself as having a very deeply rooted faith. Um, and I wanted to kind of peel back the layers on that and, and work out how had I made sense of all this? Because I knew I had done. So part, part of the process of writing helped me work out what it was that I'd actually kind of gone through as a process. Um, but as I got into the writing, what I discovered was that what I really wanted to do was to uncover and address some of um, what I've called throughout the book kind of toxic theologies that are, um, I think, quite brutal and dangerous, that I, but I also think are quite well-intentioned um, and just perhaps a mark of a lack of theological language to talk about this particular issue, which and statistics say, you know, 20% of all known pregnancies end in a end in a miscarriage and it could be much higher. So every church, every community, every friendship group has got people who've experienced miscarriage in it. And we are really, really bad at talking about it, both culturally and and theologically as well. So um so that's that was the driving force really was that I, I was reflecting, I wrote the book that I wished I had had 15 years ago. And um, and now it's produced. I can't sit and read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and when I opened this book and saw the dedication, I just had to stop. You know, it says for all who have experienced pregnancy loss and for those who grieve with them. And I just like, you know, my own experience with miscarriage and infertility just hit me in that moment. And I felt the, that weight, the lack of recognition, the lack of resources, the connection and the space around reproductive loss among theologians and churches and books. And uh, when I read specifically, I think it's on the first few pages when you say hope characterizes pregnancy and the miscarriage of a pregnancy is also the miscarriage of hopes for the future. I felt seen in my own experience for maybe the first time in a theological space. And I've not quite processed the, the value of that yet, but I think it's going to take some time. But um, this book I, is, and I think trauma theology specifically has been a space really done some breaking through um, in some very important spaces because they're all it's just the pain that people experience in a variety of different spaces. If theology doesn't meet that space, 
then you kind of ask, what are we doing? <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. And I, uh, you know, um, it's, it's certainly not, it's certainly not for everybody, but I am so conscious of the fact that actually um, there are, there are types of theology that more immediately matter. I think, you know, all theology has its value, but, but there are some types that actually have liberation and, and, um, and flourishing just so deeply rooted in them that that they are really powerful uh, pieces of writing which um you know I'm I'm very grateful that you found the book to be like that for yourself I, I'm hoping that when others read it as well that I'm that they'll find that space as well to meet them in that space so because of the nature of the topic, um, you spend a great deal of time situating your method, discussing terms, explaining what the book is and what it's not, the nature of your theological approach. And I'll note a few things that caught me. Um, you note this book is constructive theology. It's feminist theology and trauma theology with an apophatic flavor. That's a lot going on. Uh, <laughs> so would you talk about these interrelated methods and approaches and how they situate and guide your work? Sure. I um, had a little conversation with my publisher when I submitted the manuscript because he said, well, we don't normally like to include a methodology chapter. Um, it's a bit too... Um, alienating for the reader uh, and we had a little conversation about it and I said well I really want it in there and a part of that is because I'm a I'm a teacher um I teach I teach uh, particularly master's students uh, at the moment but um they find methodology really difficult and they find understanding methodology particularly away from kind of qualitative you know I sat down and did interviews with people they find that very hard to see so I kind of wanted to show the working out and the kind of intersections that I was thinking through. Um, and partly because I thought it might be useful for people to teach from um, at, at, at later dates. Um, but I wanted to make it really clear and obvious both what I was doing and what I was not doing. And I, I, I it, this is a very, you know, it's a very fraught topic um, and and it touches on even more fraught topics as well. So obviously I'm talking particularly about miscarriage, but but it's it's difficult for a feminist to have conversations about miscarriage without getting into abortion debates. Um, and I wanted to be really clear about where where I stood and where this work was situated in relation to that. So I um, positioned the work as constructive and feminist and trauma theologies. And I kind of I think those three things really work quite well together. They're all grounded in um, the realities of people's lives and in seeking to reimagine theology in ways that do justice to people's experiences. But also that um, gives space then for in this reimagined theology for some kind of flourishing that might be able to, to happen or, or at least survival Um at the very least survival and and with the hope perhaps of flourishing so there's an emphasis throughout the book on the embodied nature of what I'm talking about and I'm conscious that when one sits and writes a text it's often easy to lose the body within that so for me kind of taking both the feminist the trauma and the constructive approach was a, a way of concretely grounding this work in uh in both a um a direction towards liberation in this kind of reimagining of theology, but ultimately in 
in miscarrying bodies. So I didn't want to just write a theology of miscarriage, but I wanted to both do something that would be pastorally useful for people, as well as um, exploring this miscarrying body as a place, a, a site, a theological location in which theology could be discovered or uncovered. So, yeah, it's a very interdisciplinary work. I, I really like to work in ways that are not necessarily easy to pigeonhole. And and I feel quite happy with that. So it ranges between, you know, history, psychology, theology, biblical studies, you know, things that look a little bit more systematic. Uh, but throughout that, really, it is the body that I'm trying to hold on to. And the apophasis is like... Um, it's like a, a, re, a thread that runs through, a bit like a golden thread that runs through the work that I think in the final chapter I kind of tug on a little bit to, to say what might this then mean for us theologically. Um, and what I wanted to do was to not pretend that I had anything, that I didn't particularly want to say I've got an answer, I haven't got a theodicy here, but I want to demonstrate the limits of our language, both around the miscarrying body itself, and then to explore that in relation to the limits of our language around God and how we might understand the nature of God in relation to that miscarrying body. So yes, it's got um, a, a lot of threads kind of coming together within it. Um, and I think that's a very constructive way of doing theology as well. Um, so yeah, it felt like it felt like a natural place. I've kind of over-egged it a little bit because I wanted to particularly have uh, a chapter that I thought would be useful for teaching as well. Well, and we'll come back to that apophatic space a little bit later. But um, you know, I'm a historical theologian of early Christianity, so seeing Pseudo Dionysius <laughs> show yeah. up in this book was I kind of a oh, that's kind of delightful, and 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 I, I deeply appreciated that because there's a, a sense of um, it's one of the spaces that you spend time on in this book is is um, and I'll, the next question I'll ask is about that silent space and and kind of constructively working around this trauma in community. Um, and I think part of that is also in communion with the tradition and it not just being kind of the space of the here and now, but also, you know, how, where are the resources in the Christian tradition that can hold us? And I think about this a lot with just like liturgies, which we'll get to as well, that they hold us when we don't have the words. Um, and it's like there's a, a space where tradition kind of gives us anchoring and grounding. So in the second chapter, you spend some time talking about the historical, cultural, and medical science around miscarriage. Um, and you mentioned theological silence, but so we'll come back to that in a moment. But in reading this section on silence, I was struck by the obvious multiple times, uh, how obvious it is that there is a silent, uh, a silence and then therefore no care. Uh, you give examples of some of the cultural markers of this silence. Some of these are seemingly banal, like the lack of greeting cards, um, the way apps track ovulation and stuff, the, you know, the back of pregnancy books having like a paragraph and a half about pregnancy laws, you know, like find it. Um, and others like the ritualistic keeping of silence during the first trimester of pregnancy. And these point to broader issues. And, and I, I thought as we were working through that space about um, all these banalities coming together was a massive force and weight and burden. And I hadn't quite 
connected that, even though I felt it, it was a, it was an unobserved moment. Um, so what are some of these cultural markers and what liminalities are they indicating and silencing? Yeah, I mean, you've mentioned some of the, the really obvious ones. Um, and actually, since the manuscript went in, the um, one of the major card shops in the in the UK has now started offering a small selection of miscarriage. Sorry for you, miscarriage greetings cards, uh, which I think is wonderful. Um, so there's a, an older piece of research by Linda Lane, which, which is not the theological, where she talks particularly about the lack of greeting cards, more pointing to a lack of a cultural script. We don't know how to do this and therefore we don't do it because it's scary. We don't know what to say. You know, we know what to do with a funeral for a uh, an adult. You know, we go and we say, oh, it was much more of a celebration than, you know, wasn't that wonderful? And that's that's great. It's a script that helps us kind of get through that. But we don't have that here. And one of the things I found really interesting as I started thinking around, particularly the first trimester silence, the fact that um, at, at least in the UK, and I'm assuming in the US as well, that we don't tell people we're pregnant until the end of the first trimester, usually at which point there's a nice scan and you, you get to kind of show everybody. And um, and I, the more I thought about that, the more I thought, who are we protecting within this? Because actually, I think within that, what who the person, the people we're protecting are the other people. We don't want to make them feel uncomfortable if we then have to go back and say, well, actually, I've miscarried. And so, I mean, that just, it just seems bonkers to me because, you know, the first trimester is when most miscarriages happen. So we're kind of setting ourselves up for silence, shame, guilt, never kind of sharing about it. So those kind of cultural markers are bound up, though, I think, with other kinds of taboos around um, pregnancy and pregnancy loss. So, Women's bodies are, are often taboo within cultures, particularly bleeding bodies, where they may be, you know, various different times in history and different cultures, physically removed from the community, um, maybe kind of uh, uh, considered to be ritually unclean, um, and that we might have to go through rituals before we can be reintegrated back into the community. Corpses, dead bodies uh, are often um, considered to be uh, taboo. Um Pregnancy itself is something that's often ritually controlled in, in particular different uh, cultures. And then emotion and the expression of emotion is also considered to be taboo. So we've got this kind of super, super sense of taboo going on here once you get into the miscarrying, the miscarrying body. Um, and I think all those taboos really do point to some liminalities and uncomfortable imprecision around what's happening so that you know we don't what are we losing when when a person miscarries well they're losing both self and other both their own flesh and the flesh of another um and that's that's complicated and difficult to to understand um to talk about it it lends itself to an imprecision of language that can be very um upsetting and distressing um and you know as you say even though miscarriage is you had twenty percent of all miscarriage. Twenty uh, percent of all pregnancies end in miscarriage. Miscarriage is tucked in the back of the pregnancy book. You know, pregnancy apps are not designed to handle miscarriage well, um, and these kind of uncomfortable boundary crossings, this kind of interruption of the expected forty-week linear progress from conception through to a healthy birth. How lovely! 
it disrupts this pattern, this uh, this this kind of pattern of linear progress, which again we find very disconcerting whenever anything gets kind of ruptured like that. Um, but added into all those different taboos, of course, it just makes it so difficult uh, to to talk about. Um, you know, you mentioned the medical silence there of course there's hardly any research on why people miscarry and you're very unlikely to ever know why it happened to you if if anybody does any kind of investigation at all so the silence is deafening and there's a lot of and a lot of this is women with women right because the moment you mention uh, or pregnant you know, right like oh I, I had a miscarriage. Oh, me too. Right, right. I had three, I had four. And so there's also the like multiple space that you know, was your experience. And, you know, you make some distinctions that um, between suffering and trauma also in this book, talking about how different ways that people process miscarriage and such. Um, and so you're not like kind of making a blanket statement about everyone's experience, but um, it, highlighting that intersection of liminality of all of these different spaces where we don't know what to do. <laughs> we don't know how to talk about it means that we have to, there's like those scripts are happening in the margins and they're isolating and they are um, oftentimes, I mean, we're terrible at talking about suffering and pain and trauma in the first place. And then miscarriage being kind of this, really intense space for that. Um, and we have either silence or really like no one knows what to say. And so they often step in it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to ask um, what might be a huge question uh, that's been, and it's been, it spans your whole book. So feel free to verge wide here. Let's begin Let's begin close to the beginning here. Um, and I want to read from page 11. Uh, and I already told you which section and so then I'll ask you a question after that. There are no easy answers in this book and indeed it has not been an easy one to write. Much of the theology articulated in this volume has been painfully worked out over the last few years, only now finding a clearer articulation as I have sought to pin it down for others to read. Miscarriage is complicated and misunderstood. Much of what happens in a miscarriage is mysterious both to those experiencing it and to the medical professionals caring for them. It is hard to talk theologically about without resorting to easy sentiments of God's divine plan and purpose for everything that we experience. When we peel back those pat responses, we find an uncomfortable and disconcerting theological position before God. The only thing we can be sure of is to say that throughout all these experiences, God remains. That thin, weary thread of love is constant and reliable, so that whatever else is stripped away and reimagined as we work out theology from the miscarrying body, God remains. This God remains is a theme that you bring, you come back to over and over again. And would you talk about what it means for God to remain? What it God, what it means for God to remain in the miscarrying body, and what a theology centered here offers hmm. I, I came I came round to this this theme of God remaining partly out of wanting to resist um, some of the language around solidarity in suffering and I, I like I like Maltman a lot but I find the 
Maltman's kind of thesis that, uh, you know, God suffers on the cross and therefore God is, is a God that's within solidarity, in solidarity with us. I found that quite irritating, if I'm honest. I, I felt like I didn't need to know. It didn't matter to me if God knew how I felt, because he, because how could God know how I felt? God who has never experienced a miscarriage, God who has never had cancer. You know, God didn't, the, 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 the incarnate God did not necessarily need the specificity of that kind of solidarity. And I was kind of thinking about that in relationship to the, the, the women who I had spoken to when I had had my miscarriages and the best people were the ones who had experienced miscarriage, who, who didn't try and say anything, but just brought around a lasagna and sat on the floor and cried with me and, you know, didn't try and fix anything. And so I was wrestling with this idea of divine solidarity, which is such an easy turn. You know, God, God knows, God knows how you feel. And I kind of wanted to say that that doesn't mean anything to me. And I don't know that God does. I think intellectually, but not necessarily emotionally, God doesn't necessarily know. But as I was kind of wrestling with that, I was thinking, what 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 can I say with confidence? And and the the place I landed in was that no matter what had happened, there had never been a time at which I had been abandoned by God. And I was reflecting on Jesus's cry from the cross, which I find so interesting. When you know, my God, my God, so there's a cry out, an expectation that God can hear, and then why you know why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Uh, an accusation of absence so there's a real paradox in that cry and I just I found this um sense that within all this perhaps the only thing I could say with confidence was that God had never not been there God had remained and it, within that then I'm picking up on um, a theme that's quite strong within trauma theology so I'm particularly influenced by Shelley Rambo's work on Holy Saturday and she's talking about uh, resisting the rush to the resurrection, resisting the kind of proclamation of victory and triumph, um, and holding, holding, holding Holy Saturday, uh, both metaphorically but also liturgically as well, as um, a space in which God is dead and yet God is is alive. Where um, even in the death of God on the cross, God remains. And she talks particularly about the presence of the Holy Spirit as um, a breath of death as well as, you know, we often refer to the Holy Spirit as a breath of life. So I um, I wanted to draw that, as I position this as a something that was traumatic for me, at least, not, not claiming that the experience of reproductive loss is traumatic for everybody. But I wanted to draw in that insight from trauma theology um, and to explore whether or not that could be comforting and reassuring, because it doesn't feel like enough. But actually... In, in that apophatic sense, it is almost the um, the via negativa. The only thing I could say was that God was not absent. Um, and actually, the more I dwelt with that, the more I felt that that was a small but very powerful claim. Uh, and it felt small compared to the kind of theologies that I had been exposed to in terms of worship songs but also prayers the kind of prayers people had wanted to pray over me when I was experiencing these miscarriages um actually this uh sense that God remained with me uh felt like the antidote to that it's small but it's the still small voice that whispers you know in the chaos um so for me I think a theology centered here enables us 
to, um, well, I, I guess pick up some of that apophatic flavour that, that I've talked about already. I think I wanted to be cautious, but also comforting in, in what I felt confident about what I could claim, theologically speaking. But actually, having kind of come full circle around, you know, through through all the different things that I've kind of not necessarily discarded, but wanted to draw out different kind of emphases. Um, it's enabled me, I think, particularly as a feminist theologian, to rethink comforting presence and friendship with God, to, I think, particularly about the friends that came and comforted me after my experience of my first miscarriage in particular, you know, who brought me a pair of fresh pyjamas and held me and cried with me and as I've kind of rethought what what it might mean to be in partnership with God um I've come to see them as the arms of God around me at that particular time and that and that that uh, has enabled me I think to articulate a very feminine idea of God particularly the particularly kind of God the spirit which I think comes across a lot in the prayers at the end as well I really appreciated your thoughts about the complicated and fraught term miscarriage. So we've been using the term uh, and you, you talk about it throughout the book, but especially in chapter three, where you do some reimagining work. Uh, would you walk us through how you decided to engage this term? And and you even offer some alter alternatives, but you're like, it's not going to catch on, but you kind of <laughs> wish it would. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, so what do you mean when you say miscarriage requires reimaginings? Um, I think I've I've reflected over the years, and other people have as well. I'm um, uh, draw, drawing on a number of people's work in this area here, where the word miscarriage carries with it a whole load of connotations. The only other time we use the, that that word is in a miscarriage of justice, which is where human error has caused something, you know, potentially even the loss of life uh, has has caused something to go horribly wrong, either. Um, deliberately or or not but there is blame and guilt to be to be shared there um and it feels I always felt like when I say I miscarried or I had a miscarriage that 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 language both minimized what I had experienced but also really made me wonder about the kind of guilt and shame and betrayal I had felt whilst I was kind of going through these experiences and I've pondered on afterwards. So I think one of the things I wanted to do was to highlight the inadequacy of the term really. So I proposed something like um, death in utero because it gives permission to grieve. Um, and that's partly why I use the word grieve in the um, dedication at the beginning, because I feel like one of the things that's come up again and again in this work is that people feel like they shouldn't grieve, you know, or it's not really a life or it's, a, you know, I, I then went on and had another pregnancy and that was successful. So why would I, you know, why do I need to grieve this one? So there's a permission giving, I think, within that. But also that that miscarriage and the sense that I had a miscarriage um, revealed to me a potential for a kind of dualism that I really wanted to avoid in in the work that I was doing so if we wanted to say that our bodies are not to blame or well, I am not to blame for a miscarriage and yet the miscarriage takes place in my body then in order to do that we have to 
we have to kind of come up with a bit of a dualism between self and body, which I never, you know, as a, as a feminist theologian, I always want to resist these kind of binaries. And But I didn't want to just discard this sense of guilt and, um, and betrayal because actually I, I think it's important that we recognise the embodied emotions that go along with this, even when we do want to say nothing you did would have made any difference. And that is most often the case. You know, I think I wanted to to say, well, yeah, but we do feel guilty. We do feel like our bodies have betrayed us. We do question, you know, should I have gone for the run? Should I have had that glass of wine? Should I have that slice of cheese? You know, all of those things run through people's minds when they discover they're miscarrying and for months and years afterwards. Um, and I wanted, I wanted to do justice to that, really. I wanted to to give some space for that to potentially be true and what that might then mean for us. So my intention in that in that work is to kind of close the gap between body and self, um, because in any other context, I would never split out self from body. And so it it was disconcerting to me that I found that there was a lot of, of uh, binary language tied up in miscarriage. And I think death in utero brings self and other, body and self together. It, a way that's a bit more meaningful than the word miscarriage it carries with it some less baggage um, and doesn't have this sense of smallness within it. This, um, you know, I, I sometimes talk about reproductive loss and loss for me is like I lost my keys or, you know, I lost that earring that I really like, you know. So loss itself can be um, a bit of a problematic term too. So no, it won't catch on, unfortunately, but I just wanted to flag up the potential that our language had to for something that might do better justice to it although you'll note even I don't go on and use the term through the book because I, I it felt too awkward to do so yeah and you you go through other terms too uh, baby mother um and and just it really struck me just how words matter words matter and and when we speak them we are kind of thinking back to the Holy Spirit as the breath of life and death, we can be speaking life or speaking death over someone by the simple words that we use to describe an experience. And I, um, it, this brought to mind, I had a well-meaning member of, and we always talk about, it's well-intentioned, right? It's well-intentioned, a well-meaning member of a church that I attended a um, long time ago, uh, who handed me a, this but post my miscarriage that handed me a flower on mother's day. Um, and <laughs> I know y'all can't see her, but she cringed. <laughs> I said that because um, they were passing out flowers to every woman. And I, and I get the intention. I get it. Um, and, and they knew I had miscarried. And, and so, well, they handed me a flower um, and I had tried to actually avoid that um, moment, but it happened anyway. Um, and, it's like, this doesn't really apply to me. I don't remember what I said, but they were like, well, you are a mother. And I was like, no, I'm not. <laughs> but at the same time, I know, right, that other that others who have experienced this might say, yes, I am a mother. And so I didn't want to like, I, it was a strange space to to have have a dialogue with my own self, my own experience, and then also recognizing other people's experiences would have, if they hadn't had that recognition, would have the same response I did, but from the opposite perspective. 
And so, and the words that we use, right? Like, and I don't quite, and it, again, lack of script. Yeah. But I think, I think what you're picking up on there is this relational idea of pregnancy. So as well as reimagining miscarriage, I also do a little bit of reimagining pregnancy, which, I, you know, I found some of the feminist philosophical work that's been done in this area already to be really useful. Particularly this idea that we, we, we as society don't necessarily need to come up with the solution for, you know, what, how long do we call it a fetus and an embryo? And when do we call it a baby? And, you know, is she a mother? It, you know, it, um, I talk a bit about um, including trans women in in this uh, work that I've done as well. So there's a whole load of language that's particularly fraught around this. And, and so I found this relational model of pregnancy where actually the embodied experience of the person who's pregnant is the driving force around which we uh, arrange our language uh, that also recognize the fluidity. So I personally don't consider myself to be a mother, uh, but that's fine. I don't. Other people do. That's okay. Uh, but then I always refer to what I lost in my miscarriages as babies. Uh, and, you know, other people prefer other terms. I think that's also okay. But I related to them as babies. I don't now consider myself to be a mother. But I found also the sense that this might be a fluid kind of relationship and that, you know, people might change their mind from day to day on whether they felt like they were a mother or not, or whether they felt like what they were carrying was a baby or not. Uh, actually, a really helpful, um, helpful way of um, negotiating some of the language around abortion, which I didn't particularly want to, um, was not really relevant to what I was talking about here. But I was conscious that it would have been very easy for me to land in some language that could then potentially have been used in ways that I didn't really intend it to be used. So I did find that relational sense of pregnancy to be much more helpful in terms of giving space for people to have multiple different experiences of what it was like to be pregnant. And potentially contradictory, right? Not, I'm not a mother, yeah. but I lost yeah. babies. <laughs> Baby. right? and, yeah. and, and that yeah. is really hard for people who want your grief to go away. Um, and, and even for our own selves that, that like want that pain to go away and to, to be in that space where it's contradictory in a sense, but you don't, it doesn't feel like one, but it is. And, and, and that, so this exploration of terms was, was really, uh, it, it kind of, it named things, um, that I thought was really helpful. Let's move to chapter four. So this is where you, this is the fun one. You take on the doctrine of providence and prayer here. So buckle your seatbelts, listeners. Here we go. Uh, <laughs> this was a barn burner of a chapter. <laughs> um, so the way scripture is interpreted and mapped onto experience, you really talk about this. Um, you mentioned at the head of the chapter, you have Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call me and pray to me and I will listen to you. You and Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, right? And you also talk about your experience of prayer and prophecy, so both scripture and also kind of the space of worship and church and prayer, and uh, there, especially with the prayer and prophecy, um, I, I always think back to my mom, right? So I grew up in a charismatic background as well, um, and I remember my mom saying, you know, there's certain things out of bounds with prophecy no bows, as in, you know, <laughs> like a bow, no bows, no babies, no bucks. 
<laughs> and um, I, thought, oh, I really wish that had been a rule in my church. Right? Like that was, and I and that that is stuck with me. She's like, do not. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> do not. Good advice. Uh, I know, right? Um, and uh, I immediately thought uh, broadly about how we care for one another and how prayer seems to be a space in which our lack of control and our fears as the prayer are mapped onto God doing something. Um, and in, then we might inflict that on someone else. Uh, and, and of course you went there straight for the doctrine of providence and petitionary prayer. And, and you give us fair warning though, you know, like difficult conclusions and theological problems. <laughs> here they come. <laughs> Turn left here if you want to leave. Um, and, and then you refer later to how you unsettled some traditional doctrines. I really liked that that term. Um, so let's get into it and spend some time being unsettled, um, which is a liminal space in and of itself. Um, let's talk about the problems with providence and prayer and what reimagining looks like here. Let's start with providence. Yeah, so I was in a, and I, I, should, I should kind of say again for the listeners that I, this very much comes out of my own experience, both with of my own pregnancy losses, but also the particular church context that I was in, although I know this resonates with people. So I was in a very reformed, charismatic, evangelical English church that had a very particular understanding of providence, which I eventually traced back to the the Heidelberg Catechism, um, which is a fun read if your if your listeners are interested in it. But basically, it it was to say that whatever happens to us, nothing comes to us by chance, but only by God's fatherly hand. So there's a paternal kind of element within that. But but it talks about you know um, sickness and health, barren years and fruitful ones, all of those equally are sent to us, not by chance, but by God's fatherly hand. And that is that is the traditional doctrine of providence that I had uh, imbibed, not through preaching, but through prayer and worship, which is why I make the term particularly to petitionary prayer uh, in, this, in this chapter. And I often say to my students, if you want to know what your doctrine of providence is, ask yourself what you're willing to pray out loud for somebody in a church context. That will tell you how far your doctrine of providence goes and it will reveal something to you about um, how you understand God's action within the world. The doctrine of providence, it, it can go it can go one of two ways. So either we can um, we can pray for God to change God's mind um, for you know whatever plan has been set in motion. We now need to get that that changed or it goes the opposite way where we say, you know, actually, we just need to have peace with what's happening and um and, and both of those really speak to this idea that god has a plan for the world god has a plan for my specific life um and what is happening to me now in this case a miscarriage is exactly what god has planned now interestingly i've talked about this in other theological contexts where there's been more catholic theologians and they have kind of bolted this idea of of or this particular portrayal of providence which I think is fair. It's, it is quite a Protestant reformed way of understanding problems. Yeah. Um, so if this isn't what your church looks, looked like when you were when you were younger, if it's not what your church looks like now, that's great. So I found that actually, the more I delved into this understanding of providence, the more I reflected on the fact that actually the biblical text itself is quite ambiguous about providence. 
um, or certainly polyvalent. There's, there's lots of different ways of understanding and seeing providence. And, and the nature of God um, was similarly up for discussion, at least. It wasn't as settled as the Heidelberg Catechism might have suggested. So, um, so as I was re reflecting on this, I, I felt like I wanted to name this particular kind of providence and it's then it's outworking, particularly in petitionary prayer, as something that was toxic. And I've I've used the term toxic because I wanted to think about, you know, the kind of the the toxic thing that seeps into the house when you're not really looking for it, you know, the kind of if you can imagine the green gas kind of bubbling up, you know, it 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 happens without you noticing. Uh, because as I say, I never heard a sermon, I never heard a preach on God's providence. It was always a throwaway comment. God works all for things for the good of those that God knows the plans he has for you, plans to prosper you, plans to give you a future. That's how I heard it. Um, and so what it revealed to me, I I think, was um, a misunderstanding of some of the biblical texts. Um, the problem with proof texting, when we take, you know, Jeremiah 29 doesn't mean what we all think it means or what, what you know, that kind of proof text lifting has made it mean. But I wanted to unpick the uh, relationship between providence and prayer this tension between asking God to do a miracle and then also praying that we could just accept God's God's will. And both of those I felt named a kind of relationship between God and and the world of God and my life that that actually just wasn't right. Um that and so as I reflect on this and I spent some time working in feminist liberation black and process theologies um to, to just see how other people had had reimagined providence in particular, um, I wanted to, I wanted, to, I ended up getting to the point where I was able to say, reproductive loss is not a divine event; it is a biological process, which seems so obvious. Of course, it is. On one hand, we know that, but but when you're when you're in this doctrine of providence that says all things happen to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand, then reproductive loss becomes a divine process, or at least a divinely initiated one. Um, and what I wanted to just to, to conclude in that was to say, God isn't involved in pregnancy. Pregnancy is a biological thing. And therefore, God isn't involved in pregnancy loss. Not to say that God isn't is absent, because God remains, God is there in all things. But that we could not attribute pregnancy loss to God. and But therefore, the flip side of that is that we cannot then attribute pregnancy success to God, which I think is the uncomfortable bit because I love kids. I think they're amazing. Um, I've certainly been to baptisms and naming ceremonies, you know, where people have talked about children as a gift from God. And that language is really prevalent. And I, yeah, I don't think we need to get rid of that. But that language of children being a gift from God has a flip side of it, which then says, in which case, miscarriage is also at God's hand. Because why would God be involved in one biological process and not another? So, yeah, it's a real unsettling. And I, as you mentioned, I kind of lean into what does that mean then for us in terms of prayer, partly because I want... I want to I want throughout the throughout the book to really unpack and explore the relationship between theology and spirituality so that what we believe impacts on 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 what we can then pray and I felt like the the toxic kind of prayers that I had experienced we said already you know they were well intentioned nobody meant to hurt me but 
they came out of poorly thought through theology and a lack of you know language around it so if you don't mind I'm going to read just a little bit about what I think we should therefore pray please do so um what then should we pray we should pray for those experiencing miscarriages to know God's love that they might feel God's comforting presence with them, that they might know how to grieve and be angry. We should pray that our communities might learn how to support people having these experiences better. We should pray that such experiences do not destroy people's faith in God, but rather give them space to reimagine their faith and come to know God afresh. So I just wanted to shift the focus of our petitionary prayer away from asking God for a miracle and more towards this um, a prayer to the God who remains, the God who is still still with us, and emphasising, I think, within that reimagined sense of providence that the way in which God affects the world is through humans. It's, it's in partnership and in relationship with humans. And therefore, the um, prayer becomes ethical action as well as the two things are connected together yeah I thought I had this moment and, and I knew this to be true but you, know, you talking about it helped me kind of really say that prayer is not in in practice an unopposed good thing <laughs> I, right it can be it can be a real and I think a lot around the language of thoughts and prayers around the school shootings right that has really brought this up right um, that prayers have consequences, or if they're coming from a space of, um, you know, mapping our own fears, like they can be really damaging and they're not communicating God's God who remains, but they're communicating other things. Um, and so I, I realize that that might lead some to say to silence because they're afraid of what to say. And, and I get that. Um, but and one of the reasons why I, I really appreciate the end of your book that gives language, <laughs> it gives some language, and and I and I do see some space in several of those prayers and some other spaces in the, in this chapter for other kinds of silent griefs and other difficult spaces that people find themselves in, and how to how to be with another person where it is prayer is ethical <laughs> and loving. Um, and communicates God withness um, in a way that isn't awful. <laughs> yeah, but there is, and, and there is space. I think within our tradition, there is space for silence before God. Um, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think we'd all be a little bit better if we were a bit less keen to speak and a bit more able to be in silence sometimes, um, because we speak. We speak to avoid silence and because we're uncomfortable with it. Um, but but the people I appreciated most in the aftermath of pregnancy loss were the ones that said, I won't swear, but they would have sworn, you know, this is awful. There's nothing I can say, but I'm going to sit here with you. You know, do you, do you want a cup of tea? Very British response. Very there. British response. <laughs> Uh, and then if chapter four wasn't enough, then you go into chapter five and you take on hope and eschatology and resurrection. 
and I'm still thinking through this chapter and the implications. I think I will for a while. And and this is the one that hit me more because I, I didn't grow up in the Protestant Reformed thing. So that to me, I was like, oh yeah, okay. I see some of the errors there, but that like kind of undercurrent wasn't there for me. But this one though, like, you know, uh, this one really sort of uncovered some things for me. And I'd love to hear you talk um, maybe briefly so we can get to especially a next question. I'd love to hear you talk about hope is present practice and hope is a, prax- a praxis of remaining against hope is toxic. And you've already kind of talked about this a little bit, you know, that rushes to resurrection and gets conflated with optimism. Yeah. Yeah. And I found again, you know, um, I'm so indebted to work of feminist philosophers who've done so much of the deep thinking that I've been able to build on for this. So particularly in this chapter, um, work by Lauren Ballant on, on cruel optimism, where she talks about eventually, you know, the, the thing you are optimistic for becomes an obstacle to your flourishing. I felt that so strongly. I felt I, I felt like that really named part of um, the toxicity of, of, of how hope had been wielded. I, I should start by saying I don't have a problem with hope. The thing that I particularly, <laughs> in the same way I don't have a problem with prayer, um, the thing that I particularly wanted to unsettle within this is the way in which hope is imposed upon us so that it's, it is not acceptable to be hopeless. And so I really wanted to hold both hope and hopelessness in dialogue with each other within this chapter. And again, kind of picking up that kind of apophatic tendency towards paradox where we, we do hold these two things together without trying to resolve them, without trying to fix them. So as you've said, you've said already, you know, resisting this rush to resurrection, to victory, uh, is, a, is a strong theme within trauma theology and I was keen to bring it in because I found it to be quite a valuable and, and uh, useful theological concept in my in my own life as well. So I what I wanted to identify though was this sense in which I was frequently told that the kind of hope I have in Jesus meant uh, meant that I would get a successful pregnancy eventually. And and again, I think it's well-meaning. I don't think it's I don't think it's done out of you know meanness, but but it is a fundamental misunderstanding of the eschatological nature of hope. Hope is something that will will only find its fullness in the eschaton, and that's great. We should look forward to that. But in the meantime, nothing about that eschatological hope offers me any particular promises in relation to pregnancy and other things, but particularly in this case, pregnancy, in the here and now. And and so that brings with it a freedom to be hopeless. And I think sometimes hopelessness is seen as a kind of unchristian thing that, you know, we're um, we're lacking in faith. But I think you can be a person of faith and still be hopeless. Um, so what I wanted to pick up on was this idea that it is only when we are hopeless that we ourselves are motivated into action. We are not able to wait for a miracle because there is no hope of a miracle to come. And I think that's actually a very healthy place to be in when it comes to pregnancy. I think being able to say that God remains, but that that God is not involved in giving or taking away successful pregnancies is a much healthier place to be in, in terms of, in terms of faith. So for, for me then, what I wanted to, to do was to frame this idea of hopelessness as um as something that was kind of imperative into ethical action and that we might then think of 
hope as a, a kind of praxis of remaining that uh, and praxis has that lovely liberation ethical kind of um action language kind of tied up in it which is which is why I chose it I, I wanted to see what would it look like if if we stopped saying God can fix these things if we kind of took a perspective that said there's no miracle to come here. What therefore do I as a Christian need to do? If I cannot pray that petitionary prayer that, that would pray for a miracle, what what therefore could I do? Um, and I've talked a little bit about what we might pray already, but you'll note all those, that, that quotation I read out, all of those things actually are things that require kind of community action. You know, that our churches would be spaces in which we can articulate these things, that we might recognise that people in our communities require pastoral care and space to grieve and um, permission to grieve within that. And that we might need to be spaces where it's OK to question and to doubt. Um, and, you know, there are particular kinds of Christian churches where expressing doubt about one's faith is very sinful, it's considered to be sinful um, and there are particular kinds of uh, Christian traditions that don't have within them this kind of history of the Christian spiritual tradition which is so bound up in in suffering and in in experiences that require us to really wrestle with God and I think you know some of that historical ignorance around the kind of spiritual tradition that we're part of does a disservice so yes I wanted to give some space for hope to be kind of put in its eschatological context and to then think okay what therefore must we do because yeah theology spirituality and ethics they're they're all bound up together um, and when you start to tinker with one it has knock-on effects with uh, with the others as well. Yeah and Sticking with that communal, that space, um, chapter seven is where you do a lot of the, I mean, you've been doing constructive work through the whole thing, but as on body theologies is where you, as you say, weave wide ranging threads together. Particularly compelling for me was how you aligned embodiment, specifically that of porous bodies, um, phasis and Eucharist. Would you talk about porous bodies as uh, sites of theology and how apophasis and Eucharistic reflection help us better see and love the body of Christ? Yeah, so uh, I think as I was talking about porous bodies in that chapter, I was thinking particularly about the way in which the miscarrying body is open but isn't supposed to be open. It should not be open, um, hence, hence the loss of the baby and the loss of flesh and blood. Uh, and as soon, for me, as soon as you start talking about flesh and blood, it brings Eucharistic imagery to mind. Of course, um, I'm not saying that what is lost is Eucharistic, but there is something Eucharistic-esque around, around this. The body in the miscarriage is profoundly vulnerable, I think both you know spiritually and, and physically. But within that vulnerability, there is a real openness to the presence of God. Not, not the God of miracles, but the God who remains, the God who weeps. Um, there is a there is an openness to that God in there. So I, I use the language of body mind throughout that chapter, which I don't do anywhere else. But I particularly wanted to emphasize this sense of wholeness and unity of the person within that chapter in particular, so that we weren't separating out body and self 
or, or that that couldn't be read into into what I was talking about. So they talk about the body mind as sacramental, and, and in one sense, that's obvious. You know, all all bodies reveal something of the invisible grace of God, but the miscarrying body sheds blood and breaks flesh. It has within it the the remains of what is lost. So the, the kind of I talk about the commingled flesh of the pregnant person and the baby. Actually, even in miscarriage, the the DNA DNA of the baby remains forever in the woman's body, which I find profound for myself because there is no there's no grave for the babies that I lost. There is there is nothing, uh, and so my own body becomes then the grave. It is the only place in which their lives are remembered. But yes, I wanted to pick up on this kind of perichoretic commingled sense of pregnant person, of mother and baby, or woman and baby, and to reflect on that um, sense of liminality around self and other. And for me, that brings me in mind of the the, the sacrament of the Eucharist, because it is in sacrament of the Eucharist, we are both self and other. We consume the body of Christ and then we are made as the body of Christ. I mean, I worship in a very high Anglican church at the moment now. Um, that made it sound like it was temporary. It's not temporary. I'm not planning on going anywhere. But, um, you know, we say, you know, though we are many, we are one body because we all share in one bread. So there is a sense in which in in that Eucharistic partaking, we, we um, blur the lines of self and other as we become the body of Christ. And I wanted to emphasize, w- without getting into, again, to eschatology too much, that these babies that were lost were also part of the body of Christ. And that as my body remains in the body of Christ, so does theirs, as theirs remains in mine. And it always brings me to mind of that, I don't know if it's a hymn that's known in the US, but there's a line that goes, my life is hid with Christ on high. And this idea of being kind of enveloped within Christ in the same way, that's a very pregnant image. So all of those kind of ideas were kind of circulating as I was thinking through how might we, how might, how might the body, the miscarrying body be a site of revelation about bodies more generally? I end I end that chapter really by thinking about um, the body as an as an unsaying body, a body that both does not speak and yet says profound things within the silence. So again, back to that kind of paradox um, that we've talked about already, and this idea of a sensible unsaying, a discipline of sensible unsaying that sensible as in grounded in our senses. So again, back to that kind of embodied that I want to kind of emphasize throughout this work but picking up that kind of apophatic sense of of silence of recognizing the limitations of our language but seeing perhaps within this miscarrying body something revelatory that can't necessarily be easily articulated but is nonetheless revealing something of the nature of God to us I think what I wanted to, to say was particularly within this chapter that Bleeding bodies are not alien to the body of God and that there is nothing taboo in the bleeding body that is full of death and yet continues to live, that disrupts linear senses of progress. There's nothing taboo there. That that sight 
is as revelatory of God and God's nature than any other, as as any other site, um, as a way of kind of starting to counter some of those those taboos that we talked about earlier. In chapter eight, this is where you put this in practice. Um, the last last chapter here, you've written a s- series of prayers and liturgies that reflect the reimaginings that you've done throughout the book. It's that praxis of remaining that has been that theme. So we talked before we hit record here, and um, you chose a couple prayers. So feel free to give any introduction you'd like um, about why you wrote this or what space. Um, then you uh, can read them, and then we'll just take a few moments of of sort of silence after each one. Yeah. So I, I wanted in this final chapter to really emphasize two things. Firstly, that um, reimagining of theology has an impact then on, on what we do and pray uh, and the kind of liturgical and spiritual resources that we w- might want to turn to. So that was important to me to emphasize. But I also talk a little bit in this chapter about pregnancy as a, a rite of passage and that when uh, pregnancy loss takes place, that rite of passage isn't complete. And, you know, from a ritual studies kind of perspective, we need something then to kind of lever us out of the um limbo that we're stuck in and so I wanted to offer some liturgies for that but I also remember how hard it was to pray when I uh, had these experiences and so I've tried to put some of that into words in in ways that I hope will be useful both for people who are miscarrying or have miscarried also for you know the chaplain the the priest the pastoral worker the friend who doesn't have the right language that they might find some hints as to what might be useful here. So the first prayer I'm going to read is the night prayer for during a miscarriage. And this really, um, I can remember lying awake for a number of nights as as uh, as I experienced miscarriage and not being able to sleep, but also not being able to pray and just crying. So this is a prayer for during the night. As the night watch looks for the morning, so do I look for you, O oh God, Lord, I lie here in the darkness and feel life slip away from my body. Lord, I'm curled up in sadness and I am alone in the night. Mother God, wrap your spirit around me, lay your hands on my womb and be with me in the darkness. Lord, you keep me safe. Let me know peace and find sleep. Be with me, for the night is at hand. And the day is now past. Amen. The second prayer that I selected was a prayer for after a miscarriage. Jesus, we remember that you wept when your friend Lazarus died. And we remember that in your own death, you felt abandoned by God. Jesus, we remember that you promised that those who mourn as we do would be comforted. Jesus, we have only sad hearts, questions and anger at the loss of our baby. We had dreamed of a future for them and now that future is lost. Jesus, draw near to us and comfort us. Be with us and give us peaceful hearts. May we learn from your sustaining spirit who remains with us always how to be kind to our bodies at those times when our bodies seem to be to blame. In sadness, we pray. 
Amen. This book is a work of love. Thank you for writing it. Um, very briefly, what are your hopes and prayers for this book? Um, I hope and pray that this book will be a book that enables people to grieve for pregnancy loss. Um, that it will be a book that enables people to minister a little bit more confidently to people who have experienced pregnancy loss. But also, I, I hope and I pray that this is a book that will be an example of a fresh way of doing theology. I hope that even people who are not interested in pregnancy loss might also read this book and find within it an approach to theological thinking that is um, rich and um, much needed, I think, in our contemporary world. I hope so too. Thank you. What a delight it was to talk with you today, Karen. Thank you for having me, Amy. It's been so great to have this conversation. This is your host, Amy Hughes with OnScript. We've been enjoying a conversation today with Karen O'Donnell, who leads research and teaching in Christian spirituality at Sarum College in Salisbury in the UK. Karen's book, The Dark Womb, Reconceiving Theology Through Reproductive Loss, is published by SCM Press. You can find links to her book on our website, onscript.study. Thank you for joining me today, friends. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.